0: i'm excited to be here I, I i really am i we've kind of had this weird connection even before we hit pullman with with this church you guys um showered us with blessings last christmas um when we were part of the church at story point in in kennewick and and so um the and pastor brent cleared out his library and gave us like between dan and i like 40 gajillion books and so um and we love books you know because we're kind of nerds that way but um it's good we're, we're glad to be here um we, just very, very briefly, um, so that I'm not here up here all day, uh, my wife and I were part of a, a group, kind of like the one that we're a part of now, that came from the Chicago area and we planted, uh, or helped plant StoryPoint Community Church in Kennewick about seven years ago or so. And uh, last March, um, well, about a year ago, God kind of began to make it clear that um, that he was preparing Denise and I to step away from that ministry and step into something new um, and so in March, we, we stepped away, and, and we went, and we um, I served as the interim for the, the church in Chelan for about, I don't know, four or five months. Um, and when that opportunity kind of came to a close, we had no idea what we were going to do, and, and God kind of likes to keep us there for some reason. And, uh, and so we were talking with, it was one of those weird, like, um, Randy, the, the DS, was on sabbatical, and so um, Bob Loon, the, the pastor from Othello, was kind of one of the guys taking over for him, and and so I was having conversations with Bob, like, I, you know, I don't have a job anymore. <laughs> I don't have a place to do ministry anymore. And and so we were kind of talking through. And, and um, Bob was actually one of the guys who kind of pointed us towards Kennewick when we came out here. And, and so we had this weird connection with him as well. And, and he said, well, you know, there's nothing going on in Pullman. You, you might check that out. And, and my parents had lived in Pullman for a couple of years, and so we were somewhat familiar. So we went up and kind of drove around and and took a look at the the schools and and everything and looked at the church building and the parsonage that was there and um, didn't have that kind of burning bush kind of moment. Um, But we were... I I won't get... That's a tangent. I'm going to leave alone. Um, But we were on our way out of town, and and my, my middle son Noah was like... He says, This is the coolest place on the earth. We have to live here. And so... So, uh, so we moved, you know, we, we, uh, you know, we, God spoke through Noah on that day, so, um, as he, he tends to like kids named Noah for some reason, I don't know. Um, (laughs) we are, uh, we are calling the church that we are in the process of planting Restoration Church, and, um, Restoration is, is a concept, it's an idea that's kind of been on our hearts and our minds a lot, um, this year, and, and, in fact i'm I'm going to embarrass my youngest son and, and I've already kind of asked his forgiveness um but i I brought in a, a couple of pictures of, of logan the The first one will be up here, and, and this is um there's Logan um earlier this year, about February, we noticed that one of his teeth was starting to get loose, which you know it happens you know we've all lost teeth, you know we have other children, you know he's our youngest. We know that this process happens. Um, but he was only five years old at the time, and so we thought, that's a little early. But, you know, I, you know my, my fatherly pride immediately kicked in, and I thought, well, he's just, you know, he's advanced. You know, he's dentally advanced. You know, he's just, he, he's superior dentally to all other children. And um, that turned out not to be the case, actually. I, I, I don't know if you can see, but there's, um, where one of his teeth is missing, there's another one coming in, but it's coming in crooked, like completely perpendicular to the way it's supposed to come in. And not only that, when we took him to the dentist, they did the x-rays, and they found out that that isn't even a tooth that was supposed to be there. He had an extra tooth. Um, and so we took him in, and, you know, they gave him the happy gas, and, and somehow I missed this process. Denise, you know, took this bullet for me. And uh, they went in, and they took out um, the extra tooth, and then they went ahead and took out all, of, all four of his front teeth. So he looks like a vampire now, if you, if you see him later. He's got the canine teeth, but nothing in between. And... Um, and so that was kind of the first thing. And, and then several months later, in the, as, when it got warmer in and, and the summer, um, the next picture here is um, Logan. He was out um, riding his scooter on on the sidewalk. And we were inside doing something. And, and we, you hear that scream that you're just convinced that there's going to be blood gushing and, you know, broken bones. And, and it, you just see a trip to the ER in your future. You know, you hear that earth, that blood-curdling scream. So we rush out. And Logan has decided to attack the curb with his face for some reason and um, and w- when he calmed down long enough that 's the picture that he allowed me to take um, and, and so logan 's kind of had a <coughs> excuse me kind of had a tough year so far um, but this next picture is uh, there he is you can see his his vampire teeth there, and uh, he you know his face is healed you know he 's kind of in the process of of, of being restored. But it's, you know, because his teeth got, you know, removed so early, the, the dentist tells us it could be as much as another year, year and a half before his teeth finally come in and before his, his smile is kind of completely restored. But I I, I tell the, these stories because I, I think that that's how restoration works. You know, some of it happens really, really quickly, and some of it happens really slowly and painfully. And And I think that's true whether we're talking about, you know, Logan's face or a car or, you know our relationship with God. I, I think it, it's this restoration process that comes in and spits and sputters sometimes, and it comes really fast sometimes, and it's really slow and painful and difficult at other times. And I, I think that, I think one of the reasons that this is so on my heart is, is I think a lot of churches miss this. I, I think a lot of, there, there's a lot of churches out there that, that, that they don't for lots of good reasons, we put lots of emphasis on that initial moment of salvation. It's important and it's vital. And I, believe me, I was raised Southern Baptist, which I hope you can forgive me for, but um, I'm a recovering Southern Baptist, as I is what I tell people. But when I was growing up, it didn't matter, like, it didn't matter what Sunday it was. The message was always, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. Jesus came and lived a life that you couldn't live, and he died a death that you deserve to die because you're a dirty, rotten sinner. And you know, maybe if you come down here and pray and cry, then he won't send you to hell when you die. You know, I mean, that was the message. And and it's not that, I'm not denying the fact that, that Jesus is absolutely the necessary sacrifice, that, that he is the our means of atonement. But I think that there, there's something in there that, like, first of all, the whole, like, he lived a life that we couldn't live, like, I don't think that that's necessarily true. I mean, as, as Nazarenes, we believe in, in holiness, you know, like, He came and lived the life that we were designed to live, that we were created to live. And and just all wrapped up in the idea of restoration is that we are, as much as Genesis 3 is true, Genesis 1 and 2 is true too. And we are made in the image of God. And and it's through this miraculous thing that that he did for us that we can be restored to that image, That, that he can... Begin the process of knocking off the rust and banging out the dents and and, and repainting us and kind of re- renewing who we are, so that we can image him to the world. But I, and I think that because we spend so much time on this kind of one moment, you know, we have millions of people that have genuinely had a moment with Jesus Christ and they don't have any idea what to do next, because we you know we're so focused on this like come and, and cry the you know at the altar and. And pray the prayer. And, and, and when I was growing up, as, you know, we sang as many verses as, as, of just as I am as it took for somebody to come down and get saved. Like we were not leaving the church until somebody came down. <clears throat> but I think you know, we severely undersell the power of, of salvation. And, and we, I think we distract people from the fact that salvation is necessary and important. But, but Hebrews tells us that it's impossible to please God without faith, and living a life of faith is so much more than that initial moment. So much, more, so much bigger than salvation, and even salvation itself is so much bigger than what we give it credit for. Um, go this week and, and read um, or reread Psalm 51. If you're not familiar, it's it's one of my. I'm not a big guy that I, like I don't love the Psalms. I mean, I, I love all of Scripture. <laughs> don't don't hear me saying something I'm not, but. Um, psalms is not my go-to place you know it's just not um but i love psalm 51 because it's this it's this beautiful like david is broken and he's repentant it's the the psalm that he writes in response to to nathan coming and confronting him with his his sin with Bathsheba, and he's he's just brokenhearted and desperate to be restored into relationship with god and in fact in one verse he says restore to me the joy of your salvation and I think it's important to, to understand that, that he says your. So he doesn't say like like we would say my salvation, you know my. You know, we're so individual and so personalized, and and I think in some places that's okay. But I, I think salvation it's it's a gift that God has given all of humanity. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to you. It's this redemptive work that He is doing for all of His creation. And so. I'm I'm really, really going to try not to, I I don't have near as many opportunities to preach as I used to, and and so I'm fighting the urge to like cram 18 messages (laughs) into into one Sunday. So I'm I'm trying to stay focused. But we're going to be, if you're following along in scripture, uh, in your copy, we're going to be in uh, Acts chapter 3. It will be up on the screen as well. But I'm going to use the story there, hopefully to kind of give you an introduction to um, what we hope Restoration Church will be. Um, So let's just jump in, and uh, verse 1 says this. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now, I want to pause here, and it may seem like a strange place to pause, because you're thinking, well, Peter and John, they're apostles. Of course they pray. That's just kind of, you know, duh. Um, But I I think that, at least for me, when I read stories that I've read a a lot of times, and especially stories where... I know the ending you know I I tend to jump over the little details I tend to speed through the other stuff and and I think it's important to stop here just for a minute and and notice that that they're going to pray which is kind of a no brainer but Luke gives us a little extra detail there he he says at 3 in the afternoon and so what that tells us is that Peter and John are continuing their Jewish roots they're continuing the Jewish traditions of going at these regular times of prayer and they're going to the temple and I think that one of the things that, that I take from that is that they're not giving up on their Jewish brothers and sisters. They're, they're not they don't understand Jesus as this new religion, as you know, they're not scrapping all of, you know, thousands of years of, of Jewish history. What they're what they're doing is they're understanding Jesus for who he is. That he is the promised Messiah. That he's the culmination of all of this history, all of this stuff that the, that all of, of of the Hebrew nation, all of Israel has been looking forward to, it's here, and it came. And so they're desperately trying to engage with their Jewish brothers and sisters. And a, a huge part of our vision, a huge part of who we are, based on, on on the ministry that we've been a part of for the last seven years, is reaching out to the misfits and, and the outcasts. And, and the, the the ministry in, in Kennewick that we were a part of um, reaches out to meth addicts and um, ex-cons and single mothers and and folks that no one else or or not many other people want to give attention to and so that's always going to be part of who we are Um, but also part of who Denise and I are is we were raised in the church and I was that kid who, you know, the first Sunday after I was out of the nursery at the hospital, I was in the nursery at the church, you know, and and I'm sure some of you have had that same experience. And every time the doors were open, everything, all of it, I I was a part of all of it, which is, I'm not saying that's bad, but what I'm saying is there's a whole lot of people that have had that upbringing, and they're not under-churched, they're over-churched. And because they've gone... Down to the altar. And they've had that moment. And they went to church camp. And they they went to all of the, they followed all of the rules. And they did all of the traditions. And it feels hollow and empty. And, and they, they've come and they've, they've done everything that, that people have told them that they need to do to experience this this abundant life, this transformed life. They've done it all. They've followed all of the rules. And they haven't been transformed. Their heart doesn't, hasn't changed. Who they are has not been renewed and restored and so a huge part of what we're going to do is is as we reach out to the people that don't know jesus we're also going to be reaching out to the people who think they know jesus and and really truly and genuinely introduce them to him And, and because this is how it happened for me like i like i said i i went i lived most of my life in this kind of pattern and then I met Dan and Sherry Martin. They're the the lead pastors at at Story Point, And we met them when we were living in the Chicago area. And it was the first time I'd ever encountered someone who lived a transformed life. And and I saw in them that the Holy Spirit of God was living and active. And they didn't just talk it, although they did talk it. You know, Dan's a preacher just like me. He likes to talk. (laughs) But they lived it. And and I saw in, in every moment, and not just when they were at church, not just when they were in front of people, not just when the world was watching, but when we were hanging out as friends. They lived this life that was genuinely and honestly and really transformed by the love of Christ. And, and it was in that, that relationship that I was able to see that it's, it's not just this theory that we talk about, it's not just theology, it's not just this kind of head knowledge, that it really is honestly possible to be transformed and so that's, what, you know, that's one of our goals is to, not just in the things that we say, not just in the, the activities that we're a part of, but in the way that we live our lives and, and who we are, that the love of Jesus shines through so that people can see that it's really actually possible to be completely transformed, to be restored. Going on in the story, picking back up in, uh, in verse 2, it says this. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. Now, I I think it's important to notice a couple of things here. First, we've already kind of established, you know, they're on their way into the temple during a regular time of prayer. And so there's hundreds, if not thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people walking by this man, going on into the temple to pray. And I, I think it's interesting that only Peter and John stop and take notice of him. And a little moment of confession. I don't know about you guys, but I have these kind of experiences where I come up to a stoplight, you know, and I see the guy standing there with the sign. And I practically pull a muscle <laughs> trying not to make eye contact. You know, I'm praying, green light, green light, green light. Don't make me stop. Please don't make me stop. I'm not proud of this fact. Um, it's not something that I'm, you know, glad that I do. But I, I, I think it's important to confess our sins in front of, you know, to each other. And so I confess to you that uh, I'm not proud of that. But I, I, I love that, that Peter and John, not only do they not do that, not only do they stop and get, but they make sure they have his full attention they get down in his face and say, "Hey, look at us! Look at me! Let me—I have something to say to you." And, and I love that they're bold in the way that we're supposed to be bold. That they're bold in their compassion and their love and their generosity and their grace. That they don't, you know, bash him on the head with the four spiritual laws. They—they they get down and and they engage him where he is. And I think it's also important to notice that the. The gate that he's laying by is called beautiful. And it's not just because they couldn't think of anything else to name it. I mean, the scholars suggest that this is the most amazing, beautiful, ornate, elaborate gate in all of Jerusalem ever. I mean, it was inlaid with gold and silver, and some scholars think that it was covered in Corinthian brass, which at the time would have been even more expensive than gold and silver. I mean, this was a gorgeous, beautiful, magnificent gate and lying in front of it is this broken man this man who's been crippled from birth so not only do his legs not work but in all likelihood they're 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 crooked and they're they're atrophied and they're hard to look at and then on top of that because he's crippled he's laying in the dirt and our dirt is dirty but it doesn't hold a candle to what their dirt was like i mean they didn't have sewers they didn't have garbage men i mean the the Laying in the dirt back then meant you you were laying in in animal refuse and and rotten food and and maybe some human nasty. I mean, I don't want to get gross or anything, but I mean, dirt was gross back then. It was disgusting. And and he almost certainly would have looked bad and smelled bad and and been hard to look at. And the scripture tells us that this was a regular activity, that, that, that every day he was brought to this gate and laid in front of this gate as people, the, the, the people of God, walking into the dwelling place of God to worship God, and every single one of them passed right by him. And that he had gotten to a place where the best that he could hope for from the very people of God was a couple of gilt coins, maybe some money. The, 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 all he was hoping for was a handout. He was at the dwelling place of God being passed by the people of God and not, not getting what he really needed. And and I think that, I think one of the reasons that Peter and John stopped that day is because they saw in him something of themselves. They understood that that most often God chooses the broken and the hard to look at and the funky and the gross and displays his majesty through them because Peter and John were nobodies when Jesus encountered them I mean they were they were fishermen and nothing against fishermen but back then like had they been promising students they would have been studying with a with a rabbi had they been in wealthy families they would have been part of some business had they been from some nobility they would have been running the government or something they would have been if they were important people in that day they would have been doing something else but instead, they were fishing. And, and even after Jesus calls them out, even after now they're, they're, they are studying and, and following this, this well-respected rabbi, they still get it wrong. They're still kind of idiots. You know, they, they, over and over. I mean, Peter's lopping off ears, and he's denying Jesus, and, and John is wanting to call fire down on the Samaritans, and, and then he argues about who gets to sit next to Jesus and, and, you know, on his throne. I mean, they're just like us. They're morons. <laughs> and yet God works through them. Over and over and over. And, and it's in the same way as you and I, it's when they encounter the risen Christ that their life changes. It's after they encounter Jesus in his, all of his glory and majesty. And they, they finally get it. They finally, okay, now I get it. And it's because they understood almost more than anybody else on the planet at the time how desperately they needed Jesus. That in their own power, they chop off ears and they run screaming at the first sign of fear. But in Jesus' power, they're able to step into those scary places, step into those difficult places, and take his power with them. So if you jump back into the story, verse 6 says this. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Now, when I when I study scripture, I, I somebody taught me this a, a long time ago, and, and one of the things that I try and do, especially with um, places like the Gospels where it's very very much a narrative, is I I try and imagine as if I'm in the story. I try and imagine the story from the perspective of the the various people involved, and so I try and imagine the the time period and and the the smells and the you know the you know, what it would really be like to be that person. And so as I was studying this, I, I imagined if, you know, if I'm this crippled guy, if I'm this guy who can't walk, who hasn't been able to walk since birth, never taken one step in my whole life, and I'm laying there in the dirt, in the funk, and I'm hoping to get a handout. You know, I'm hoping that some rich dude will come by and, and have um, pity on me. And this guy comes and gets in my face and yells at me, hey, look at me! I'm thinking, well, maybe he's got some money. And he gets down to my face and he says, Hey, hey, buddy, look. I don't have any money. The first thing I'm thinking is, Well, then get out of the way! There's a rich guy coming over there. I can hear his coin purse jingling from here. You're blocking my view. I got my best pitiful face on. Get out of the way! Like, if I'm that guy, I don't even hear the second half of the sentence. I don't even hear the get up and walk part because all I'm thinking about is, You don't have what I need. Move along. And... And what's so great is that he didn't even realize that the best thing that could have happened to him that day was for Peter and John not to have any money. Because of that, they were able to give out of the infinite resources of Jesus. They were able to speak truth and life and love and healing and restoration into his life. And I think we get hung up on this sometimes. We, you know, we don't. Especially, you know, the, our, the economy's in the toilet, and there, you know, there's all there's. There's all kinds of of money issues, even when the economy's good we you know we think we're poor and like but we and we let it stop us. We think, oh well, you know, because the reality is ministry does cost money, but it doesn't cost nearly as much sometimes as what we think it does and and we can take opportunities regardless of how much money is in our pocket and speak life into people 's lives, but I think it's important also to note that. As powerful as that verse is, the miracle still hasn't happened yet. He says, in Jesus' name, get up and walk. The guy's not walking yet. Look at verse 7. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He declares healing in Jesus' name But it's not until he gets personally and intimately and physically involved in this man's life That his legs are healed Now don't get me wrong. It is not peter's power In fact peter himself if you read later in the chapter says this was not me. It was god god did this But it's this beautiful combination of of god's power and peter's obedience That allows that man to be healed that day and it's absolutely how we're supposed to work it's absolute. we're supposed to partner with God, let his spirit flow through us, and get personally, physically, intimately involved in people's lives, to step into their pain, and their suffering, and their tragedy, and speak life. I, because that's, you know, the, I, we were, one of the things we're doing as a leadership team is we're going through, um, Reggie McNeil's um, Present Future, which if you haven't read it, it's great, great stuff. Um, but one of the things that he, he talks about it is the um, the collapse of the, co- the the church culture. And he says, you know, that used to be the you go out and, and try and, and share Jesus with people, and the trump card was always, well, do you want to go to hell when you die? You know, that was the, that was the, you know, if you couldn't get them to agree that Jesus loved them before then, that was always the go-to, you know, that was the... All right, we're going to go to the big guns now. We're going to pull out the hell card, you know. And, and he says, not only is, is that kind of suspect at best, <laughs> biblically, but he said, you know, culture, what else you got? I've been to hell three times this week. What do you mean? Like, I, what else you got, you know? And it's because our trump card is life. We've come to bring life to people that's the good news like when we go out and we share jesus with people it's not hey get out of jail free you know avoid hell and death and like that's a byproduct what we what we get to share with people is jesus has come to give you life to give you the kind of life you were designed to live to give you that genuine real honest life And I think that one of the things that we struggle with is, and I, I will admit again another thing that I'm going to admit to. I'm a preacher. I like to talk. In fact, I talk way, way too much. I I need to shut my mouth more on 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 more than one occasion. But we love to declare the truth. You know, we love verse six. In Jesus' name, walk. We don't like verse seven very much because that guy stinks, and he's dirty. I don't want to touch him. Like, I don't want to get involved. People are messy. Like, I don't know, if you don't know this, people are messy. Their lives are messy. I, I mean, not you guys. I mean, you guys are all, um, you know, have everything in order. But but those other people, their <laughs> lives are messy. Ministry means getting involved in messy, funky, screwed up people, just like us. <laughs> but it's absolutely what we're called to, and it's the place that, that most often that I see the power and the Spirit of God flow through me into other people. When I stop and I take the time to listen. Because people, if when I just shut my mouth and listen, people tell you why it is that they're having problems. They, they, will, they will tell you what their roadblocks are. They, they will tell you what why they're resistant, why they don't believe that God really cares about them. They'll, they'll tell you if you just... If I just can shut my mouth long enough to listen and then the cool thing is is that we get to be the demolition crew Like we get to come in and we get to knock down those roadblocks We get to listen and as they share these things and be like That stuff doesn't matter You know that that's not even true Like there's all kinds of people that that they think that god hates them because they they believe in this zeus lightning bolt Flinging, you know angry. I hate you kind of god and we get to be the people that come to them and say, that God doesn't even exist. That's just fantasy. That's some stupid, you know, Greek myth. That God doesn't exist. He's not real. The only real God is the one who loves you. Who loves you with such passion and, and might and, and intensity that he, he gave up everything. And I think this time of year is a great time to to kind of dwell on that. I, I love Philippians too, is a for me it is a it is a picture of of Christmas, that Jesus, in his might and his power. He, he had every right to cling to divinity, and yet he emptied himself. He gave all of that up, and, and we think, you know, I think, oh well, you know, I moved my family to Pullman. That was a big journey, you know. <laughs> it doesn't matter what kind of journey. That you've been on it's significant and it's important don't get me wrong i'm not i'm not belittling your faith journey but whatever you've done whatever sacrifice you've made it doesn't even come close to the sacrifice that god made on that first christmas that journey that jesus took that that he went you know not in the because you know if i'm god and i come i'm gonna come in all my might and power and and, and jesus comes as a baby like he can't even feed himself He, he he had to count on someone else to wipe his butt i mean think about that I'm, i'm not i'm not trying to be disrespectful but just think about that like what a sacrifice that is like we don't we're so independent in this country we don't like to give up any of our rights and yet the one who really genuinely had the right to claim everything came as a child One of the things that, that we're, um, or several of the things that we're going to be doing over the next several uh, several months to, in an attempt to kind of live out this, get our hands dirty, get down in the funk with folks, is um, we're going to, uh, we, we've met a fellow at um, who reaches out to the international students at WSU, um, and, and some of the folks on our, our launch team are, are passionate about, um, international folks, and so we're going to begin to to connect with them, and we're going to find ways. There, one of the things that he does is, is these international students come. That some suggest that as many as 85% of international students who come to American universities get their degrees and go home without establishing a significant relationship with an American person, and it's just it's criminal that that we let that opportunity pass. That that you know we spend all of this money sending people overseas and these people are paying to come to us it costs us nothing A- and they're here and they're 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 curious about and one of the things that this fellow does is you know these international students come and they're they're curious about american things you know thanksgiving and and christmas and you know spring break and all of these kind of things and so he takes that opportunity of hey you know you're curious about this well let's plug you in and and then he like Gorilla-style sneak attacks Jesus on them, you know, <laughs> it's like, and it's awesome because that's the way that he met Jesus And and so one of the things we're going to do is we're, we're going to connect with this fellow And we're going to begin to kind of love on those international students Another thing that we're going to do is um, We're going to invade the laundromats in uh, in Pullman um, And and maybe at, at some point I don't know what the rules are on campus yet But we may even kind of invade the, the laundromats in the dorms on uh, on campus and we're going to go in and we're going to take You know just bags and bags of quarters and we're going to take laundry soap and fabric softener and subway sandwiches and, and food And we're just going to love on kids and we're just going to To pay for their laundry and and if they don't think it's weird, you know fold it for them, too You know that depending on what they're washing that might get a little strange, but But we're just going to try and be Jesus in real practical Kinds of ways and just see what he does and another thing that we're going to do, and we've already kind of kind of dipped our toe in this uh, direction, our uh, the elementary school that our two boys go to um, this year has started what they call the angel child program, I think. And so we've adopted this kid. Um, it's done completely anonymous, and so we don't know him, but he's uh, a seven-year-old boy. He's got three brothers and sisters, and um, one more on the way, I think. And so we've already um, gotten him a birthday gift, and we've got him a bunch of uh, Christmas gifts and and. We're, uh, one of the things that we kind of went above with was um, we bought his entire because he has a large family. We bought them uh, a Christmas dinner that we're going, you know, so that they can have that. Um, and so we're we're going to get together with the, the principal from the school um, next month sometime, and we're just going to ask, what do you need? What what are, what are the needs here? Because the you know if, if you want to know what a community is dealing with, go to the public schools, because whatever a community is dealing with, the public schools are dealing with. And so we're going to just kind of step in without any agenda, without any preconceived notions, without any desire to kind of even make it about the church. We just want to go and we want to be Jesus in the community. And then one other thing that we're we're doing, one of the things that we've kind of discovered, and it doesn't matter who we talk to, we talk to to uh, kind of all kinds of different folks. And w- one of the things that we keep asking is, because we understand that the definition of who is the misfit is different based on the, on a different community. And, and so we kind of, we knew who that was in Kennewick, but we haven't quite completely figured it out in, in Pullman. And so every place, uh, you know, every person we meet with, we ask, you know, well, who's, you know, who kind of sits on the outside? You know, who's not part of the in-group here? And, and, and all of them say that there's this... Um, this kind of group of people that are displaced. You know, they, they've, they've come to go to school or they've come to work at Schweitzer or they, you know, they've come for whatever reason to Pullman and, and they're miles and miles away from everything that's familiar and all of their family and everything that's comfortable and they just need a place to belong. They, they just need a place to fit in. You know, a place where they feel like someone actually cares about them and, and will notice when they're gone. And, and so we've begun to to be convinced that as much as you know, meeting physical needs like clothing and, and food, meeting the need for community is another real practical way that we can serve our community in Pullman. So back to the story. Verse 8 says, he, he meaning the, the crippled guy, he jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with him into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. You see you, you look at all of the almost all of the healing stories in scripture, and it 's almost never really about the healing it, it's a conduit it's it's a way it's a tool that they use to get at a real the, the real need that that this this guy and and I think it's interesting like this guy has been crippled from birth you know and it doesn't tell us how old he is, but he's probably you know a full grown adult you know he's probably in his thirties or something i don't know it doesn't matter really how old he is but I guess, again, as I kind of picture this from his perspective, if I'm this guy, like, I'm thinking the whole time I've got a list of the things, like, if I can, one day, if I could just walk all the things that I would do, like, you know, run a marathon or, you know, play football or, you know, go, I don't, I don't know what his list was, but my guess is running into the temple courts probably wasn't number one on his list. But what happens is, you know, here, this, this thing that he's um, almost certainly longed for his entire life, the ability to walk, to be physically whole, it happens. He, he gets it. He gets that greatest desire. And the very first thing he does is he realizes, God did this for me. I have, as much as it, I had a need to be able to walk, I have a much bigger need. I, I need to be restored into relationship with my creator. And so he rushes with Peter and John into the courts. And he begins this, you know, that, that has that first kind of experience of, of restoration. And then I love, uh, jump down to verse 11. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Why is he holding on to Peter and John? And they just told us that his legs are completely... Like, this dude is jumping and running around and singing and praising. Like, his legs are healed. He has full balance, full range of motion. Like, he's completely physically restored. So why is he hanging on to Peter and John? He's clinging to Peter and John, not because he can't balance, but because they know Jesus. He's clinging on to Peter and John because he sees something in their life that he doesn't have and he wants desperately. And I'm convinced that this is the beginning of a discipleship relationship. It's the beginning of this, of Peter and John pouring their lives into this guy, that that moment of healing was just the beginning. And what comes next is so much more important. Because that's what we do to people when when we bring them down front and, and, you know, when they come down at a, at a, at a, revival or whatever and then we leave them on their own we're doing the exact we're doing the opposite of what we're supposed to do to to bring someone to that moment and then not actively disciple them and plug them into a community of faith does more harm than good we're not creating christ followers that way and so you see what peter and john do is they latch onto the student they begin to pour their lives into him and i i think sometimes we we think that we have to choose You know, evangelism or discipleship. Evangelism or discipleship. Which one do I do? You don't have to choose. I'm not even entirely convinced that they're different things, because you reach out to people and you share God's love with them in the hopes that they will enter into a relationship with Him, so that they can then be discipled, so that then they can go out and reach out to broken people, so that they can be discipled, so that they can. You know, it's this constant cycle. Because the call is not to make disciples, it's to make disciple-making disciples. And that's what we want to be about. We want to be a a community that is not staff-driven. A community that is not clergy-pushed. We we want to be a community of of believers who all are actively living out our faith. Because, see, the problem is when we abdicate our responsibilities as Christians to the the pastor or the staff or the missionary or the, the evangelist, we're missing out on, on what God has called us to be. Because let me tell I, another thing that I, I just want to kind of lay out there is that if you know Jesus, if you have a life-giving relationship with him, you don't need anything else to disciple someone. You don't need a degree. You don't need a course. You don't need to be ordained. You don't need anything other than a life-giving relationship with Jesus to share that with someone else. And to be actively and intentionally discipling someone. And and not only that, but I would go so far as, not only do you not need it, not only are, are, are you capable of it, you're called to it. If you claim the name of Jesus Christ, you are called to be making disciples, to be actively and intentionally making new disciples. And I one of the things that that we've kind of been convicted of over the the last several years is is all of the things that we did that we kind of like to call disciple-making that really wasn't, you know? It's just like, I love to sit and have coffee with people. It's not discipleship. Or it's not always discipleship. I mean, there are moments where that's the first step. And that's as far as that person can reach. And to sit and have coffee and just share life is is an act of love. But at some point, that stops being discipleship and it starts being coffee and and so we need to be honest enough with ourselves to just say okay i like to have coffee with you but if we're going to be in a discipleship relationship this has to move forward this has to be something more i love that that peter after all of this he he kind of looks around and he sees that everyone is, is shocked by what's happened, and he, and he, you know, like any good preacher, he takes the opportunity to preach to him. And, and he's like, what? this is not a big deal. Why, why are you guys so surprised? And he gives, he begins this great message. And he, he tells him, look, the Messiah came. The, the guy that you've all been waiting for came, and you missed it. But here's the good news. It's not too late. You can still get in on this thing. You, you can still experience this restoration that he came to make possible and then jump down to verse 19 this is peter talking repent then and turn to god so that your sins may be wiped out that times of refreshing may come from the lord and that he may send the christ who has been appointed for you even jesus he must remain in heaven until the time comes for god to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets See Peter kind of clues them in. Look, that you know that that final restoration, that final resurrection, that that thing that we've all been looking for, that's coming. That's coming regardless of what we do. God is going to restore all of creation to himself. It's just it, it's already done. I mean, it, it's going to happen regardless of what we do. And and personally, I'm excited about that. I I don't know about you guys, but I I'm I'm excited about Seeing what eternity is going to be like. One of the first things I'm going to do is I'm going to play football with Walter Payton, and uh, hopefully he will go easy on me. Because, uh, but there, apparently there's no crying and no pain there. So you know, <laughs> even if he humiliates me, I I, I won't feel sad about it. But the the cool thing is, as cool as that's going to be, as amazing as eternity is going to be, we don't have to wait. We can experience moments of that now. We can bring heaven. In in fact, Jesus, when he teaches the the disciples to pray, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He wouldn't have told us to pray that way if it wasn't possible. If it wasn't possible to bring little bits of heaven down here now, he wouldn't have asked us to pray that way. And and so when we love people, when we serve people, when when we do things that, that, that bring life, and healing and hope into people's lives. Then we bring little bits of heaven down here now. In fact, the the, the Greek word that's, that's translated there, times of refreshing, literally means to catch your breath or to breathe easily again, to reviving with fresh air. And and I don't think it's coincidence that Peter is using these kinds of breathing and air and, and the fact that the the spirit is always kind of connected to these same kind of terminology that that. The, the wind and the, the breath i think what it's saying here is that we get to remind people that god breathed into them they have the very breath of the creator inside them you are made in the image of god and god loves you so why do we lead with the you're a dirty rotten sinner why do we lead with you're going to go to hell when you die if you don't change your ways The good news is life and healing and hope. And we have the privilege of of being God's agents of hope and restoration and life in a world that so desperately needs it. And just because some of them don't understand that they need it, we shouldn't let that scare us off. From taking that life and that love to them. I, I want to close today with with a um, a challenge and an invitation. Um, I, I I would challenge you guys to join with me because I I've um, I've given this message several times now. I, I've I've been invited to to several churches in the area and, and I I love it. it. It's still powerful. It still works on me. Um, but that's part of the problem is that it still works on me. It still kind of convicts me, you know. And, and so I would invite you guys to, to, to kind of ask yourself regularly those tough questions. But over and over I have to ask myself, who am I discipling? Who am I intentionally, like, not just kind of, oh, well, those people over there. No, a name, a specific person. Who am I intentionally and actively pouring my life into? getting into the the, the messiness with them and showing them that there is a way out. The way that I live, is it it bringing about this time of refreshing that God says is possible? Am, Am I living in such a way that when people encounter me, they are more hopeful and more full of life than before? And not because I'm cool, not because I have any kind of innate ability to do that, but because God's Spirit is living and active in me.